Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership. And we have a terrific guest with us today. He is the CEO of Miller Ingenuity, which creates high-technology products that saves lives and preserves the environment. He is a keynote speaker and has addressed audiences at Harvard Business School, the United Nations, Carnegie Hall, the Safe America Foundation, Industry Week, the World Safe Summit, and so on. So welcome, Steve Blue. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, same here. And before we really uh, jump into our interview, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Steve. He is the CEO in residence at Winona State University, and author of five books, including Mastering the Art of Success, The $10 Million Employee, and Metamorphosis. He works with executives, leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone seeking to learn how to maximize their company's growth through fostering company culture and innovation. So more importantly, we are going to have the chance to talk with a fellow who has a lot of experience. And so I've been looking forward to this interview. To get us going, Steve, tell us about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. Sure. I grew up in a blue-collar family. My father was a truck driver and my mother was a waitress. And and, in a sense, that sort of set the stage for me uh, to be a little more on the humble side as I rose in the ranks, became a CEO and a little more uh, aware of kind of where people at the lower level of society can be. And that that can be a, a large part of your workforce. If you run a manufacturing company, a large part of your workforce are blue collar people. And so I, I kind of understand them better than most. My parents couldn't afford to send me to school, so I joined the Navy. And I don't I know I don't look this old, but I was in the United States Navy from 1969 to 1974. After I got out of the Navy, I eventually found a job where they gave a tuition refund. And I didn't get my bachelor's degree. I went to night school, didn't get my bachelor's degree until I was 40, I think 43, and didn't get my MBA until I was 52. And there are advantages, Steve, in getting a a formal education kind of later in life, particularly uh, after you've been in business. And so when you get some MBA professor saying, well, this is how it is in business. You can say, well, you know, kind of not. 
So that was, uh, I think, a large part of my seasoning, if you will. And I worked for a lot of pretty terrific bosses during the, the last 30 or 40 years. And I've worked for some pretty crummy ones, too. And I learned just as much from the really good bosses as I have from the really crummy ones. The thing about what I learned from the crummy ones is I would never, what they subjected me to, I would never subject anybody to, ever. That kind of formed the basis over the years of my, my belief and culture. The most important thing in anybody's company, the most important thing, bar none, is culture. And I kind of grew up learning those lessons uh, over time. As my career progressed, Steve, I was in every, every single department in a company. And I became known as a troubleshooter. And so they would say, hey, we need Blue to come here to fix this. So as a result of that, I got to understand everything in a business, everything from top to bottom, left to right. So now when I'm confronted with a particular problem in engineering or in marketing or wherever, I've been there, done that. There ain't no fool in me. So that's given me a lot of uh, insight that most people wouldn't have in, in a CEO job. CEOs tend to grow up in the marketing world generally or sales maybe occasionally in engineering. So they understand that silo really well, but they don't really understand the other silos as well. I think that's been a large part of my upbringing, if you will. So we are going to take advantage of this time today. You have so much experience. You've seen it from so many different perspectives. The Navy is an amazing training ground. You gain so many leadership lessons there, and then you go on to apply it. But one of the most important things that you said as you talked about turning points is that you were a troubleshooter. In other words, people could turn to you to get things done. How do you do that, Steve? Well, at the end of the day, you get paid to solve problems, right? Okay, yeah, you have to create opportunities, and I get all that. But at the end of the day, you're paid to solve problems. And a problem solver is worth his weight in gold. You'll find this a little bit on the amusing side. The first problem I solved in a manufacturing environment way back when, when I first started, was vending machines. The vending machines weren't working. People were complaining about it. Nobody wanted to touch the vending machines because they were like nuclear waste. My boss at the time was, I was talking to lots of vending machines, not like three. And my boss at the time had that awful responsibility. I said, tell you what, let, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that problem and I'll fix it. And I did. And so after that, he, he said, wow, maybe this guy can fix other stuff. And so then I started fixing bigger issues, more complicated issues. And then other departments noticed that. And then they say, I want Blue to come in my department and do this. And, and so that's how I got into almost every department in an organization and learning all about it and learning where the problems and the issues are. But at the end of the day, you get paid to solve problems. Yeah, you get paid to find opportunities and all that kind of stuff. But the world is full of problems. Anybody who thinks, you know this, Steve, anybody who thinks that I, I, I hope I don't get any problems today, they're crazy. They're deluding themselves. I mean, every day is another problem. And the more you get at solving problems, the more, better you get at anticipating them and kind of finding ways to get around them. So that's sort of how I got in every department in a company. Well, two quick thoughts. One is I love the fact that Steve Blue here got his bachelor's a little bit later in life, and got his master's later in life. That is the spirit of becoming your best. In other words, you know, you never get too old for it. You can do it. Your best is yet to be. And then secondly, I, I love this attitude of one of the greatest things that you can do is be a problem solver. 
So everyone listening today, whether you're in a home where you're a, someone that is a full-time mom or dad, or whether uh, I'll share a story with you. I just heard yesterday, we held a family Zoom and one of our family members, good looking, tall athlete, he has two sons that have been athletes and he was driving about four hours late at night to get to one of the tournaments. Anyhow, he said, I decided to listen to the Becoming Your Best podcast series and I'll listen to one and then I'll take a nap. But he said, I just kept listening and listening and listening. <laughs> I love that. So Dean Rudrud, if you're listening today, Steve, are sending our regards. But what a message. If we talked about nothing else except what we just did, individuals that can solve problems, that can contribute, that take it on themselves and say, listen, I'm going for this. I can make this better. I can solve this problem. Our interview would have been worth it. But we've got a lot more to cover. Steve, tell us, what are some early warning signs that the health of a business or an entity, an organization, or even a family is at risk? You know, I uh, look back at this when I first published what I, I think I called it the seven silent business killers was uh, back in 2010. They haven't changed much in the last 20 years, I guess now, but I've refined the, the thinking, if you will. Uh, they say blood pressure is a silent killer because it, it has no symptoms, right? But it does have symptoms, but they're subtle and you don't necessarily see them or think about them. Same thing is true in a business. Anytime, uh, Steve, that I've sat back and, and looked around and thinking, oh, man, everything's going just fine. Everything is the life of Riley. I got it all. I got the CEO thing down now. I don't have to look at anything else. I do it. I'm going to go out on the links and have a good time. Anytime I thought that a crisis was right around the corner. And so when you think things are smooth, I guarantee you, Steve, things are not smooth. You just have deluded yourself into thinking they are, believing they are. So now, anytime I feel like that, I start, this is what I advise the CEO. When you start feeling like that, you're missing something. You don't know what it is. So start digging into the business, find out what it is. And don't expect, if you dig into what one department say, marketing or sales or whatever, don't expect them to go, oh, yeah, I got all kinds of problems. They aren't going to do it. So you have to listen for the subtle signs of uh, the issues and problems that are there just beneath the surface. Have you found, Steve, that there are some tools that can help you stay ahead of the curve and not get lulled into complacency so that you can discover things before they come up? What's been your experience there that's been helpful? Yeah, you have to, uh, and I know you're an advocate of this, uh, constant communication is a really big issue. Not one-way communication, but two-way communications. And I, you know, you have to have a balance in a CEO's job of micromanaging your subordinates, which you shouldn't ever do, because they make a lot of money, they're executives and all that, and, and not managing them at all. And so what I do is uh, I meet with my senior leadership team once a month, in an ad hoc basis as they need to. Once a month, we do a very deep dive into the business. We go vertically, we go horizontally, we go by customer, we go by product line, we go by product development. If you do that completely and thoroughly and listen, you have to be, you have to listen because people won't jump up and say, yeah, I have this problem and I, and I hope you don't fire me because you find it out. You have to be very careful to listen to what the issues are and that's the way, that is probably the only way I know of to uh, avoid potential problems before they come up. Because if you meet 
that frequently and you're listening that hard, you're not going to miss things. Excellent. That's an excellent observation and practice as well. Now, you've talked about silent business killers and listening today are people from all walks of life. And and I know that what we're talking about applies to all walks of life, including the schoolroom, a, a sports coach, a, and a family. But what are the silent business killers and how can they be avoided? I'll go over the, the most important ones. And this is uh, uh, one of the other questions you had. And, and this transcends every organization. And that's called conflict. Every organization has conflict. The schools do, the church does, businesses do, your local grocery store does. But in most cases, conflict is either ignored or they pretend like it doesn't exist. And so what will happen is you'll be in a meeting, okay? If you're in a meeting and anybody says, these are the dreaded words of conflict, they say, let's take this offline. You've heard that, right? That's code speak for we don't want the boss to know that there's problems here and we don't want to have to deal with those problems at all. So let's pretend like we'll deal with them later on. And they, and they don't. They never do. Most business leaders think conflict is something to be avoided. I say it's exactly the opposite. Conflict is something to be embraced, uncovered, embraced, and used productively. As long as you uh, recognize conflict and use it in a productive way, it can be a powerful weapon for your business. And if you don't, it could be a disaster. Perfect example, the Challenger disaster. I did a, I did a deep dive on that as part of uh, a keynote I did for Medtronic. There was all kinds of conflicts surrounding that seal, that $56 seal that failed, all kinds of conflict with all kinds of uh, parts of the organization, but it kept getting buried, kept getting buried, kept getting buried, never, never was treated and, and addressed. Otherwise, that disaster wouldn't have occurred. So my message to CEOs is, Find the conflict. You've got it in your organization. It's there and, and just don't let it become buried. Okay, good. That's a silent killer. So if you try to squash the conflict or you don't listen to it or encourage it, then your organization may not be as strong. You may not see the issues. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And uh, the, the root of the problem is most people, most CEOs do not want conflict and they don't want to hear about problems. They like to pretend there are no problems in their business and there's no conflict in their business. And so therefore, their subordinates bury the conflict because they don't want to make the CEO mad. First thing you have to do as a CEO is say, not only give your uh, employees permission to uh, talk about and raise conflict, but actually demand that they must. That's good. What are some of the other silent killers you found that we need to avoid? This is one of my favorites. I love to talk about this. It was uh, actually the basis of my second book what I call the $10 million employee, where your most toxic employee meets your most important customer. And I'll tell you how that book came about. I was walking into, I think it was, I won't say the name of the hotel chain because they, you know it is, then they get mad at you. I was walking into a hotel chain with my family many, many, many years ago. My kids are little, four and six or whatever, we're late. Walk into the place and it is spectacular. Marble on the floors, mahogany, you know, stained glass. It was the warm chocolate chip cookies at the front desk. It was spectacular. We got checked in. We went upstairs and tried to order room service. And uh, they said, well, it'll be like an hour and a half. Um, are you kidding me? Now it's even worse. So anyway, being the big, tough CEO that I am, I told my wife, I'll solve this problem. So I got on the elevator. I started to go. I said, I'll just go down and get it. 
luck would have it, I was in the elevator with the room service woman. And I said, ah, this is my lucky day, your, your room service. She goes, yeah, well, I'm not very happy about it. And if you think you're going to get anything out of me tonight, you might as well just forget it. Oh, there's a great attitude, right? So by the time I got up to the room, this one employee, one toxic employee had convinced me not to ever walk into that hotel or, or, or another one like it ever. Okay, so that's a perfect example of how one of your one of your toxic employees. Now, how many how many uh, encounters might I have had with this hotel chain over a lifetime? A lot, right? But so I go up to the room, and then we call the front. There's no. We pull the hide bag out. There's no sheets or, or pillows or blankets. Oh man, now it's almost midnight. What's the chances of getting anything? Call the front desk. He said, "Oh yeah, we'll take care of it." And I'm thinking, "Yeah, sure he will." Ten minutes later, Steve. The front desk guy was up at my door with a big smile on his face with pillows and blankets and sheets apologizing all over hell for the fact that they weren't there to begin with. So that 10 million employee actually saved that encounter. So my my advice to CEOs or any leader is you have toxic employees. I guarantee it. And and you've got to go find them. And, and, and you can't fix a toxic employee. I can give you all kinds of stories of how I tried and it never worked. The only thing you can do with toxic employee, because by the time you realize they're toxic, they've been toxic for years and years and years and years. And they hate you. They hate the customers. They hate their coworkers. Hate everybody. You can't fix them. This is one of your questions. The only thing you can do about a toxic employee is ask them to go to work for a competitor. Ah, 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 ah. All right. Good recommendation. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, those are good. Thanks for touching on that. Uh, uh, every organization has a toxic employee and you need to just kind of buck up and get after it and make a change. Do it in a way. You can be kind, but you got to make the change. But once you've done it, Steve, once you've eliminated toxic employees, for God's sake, don't ever let another one come in the front door. You got to be very deliberate and very engaging about your interviewing process to make sure you don't get another one when you just got rid of one. That'd be crazy. Yeah. One of the things you did is you talked about how important culture is and how a healthy culture creates a healthy environment and then contributes to the success of the organization. Part of that is innovation. What are some tips that you might recommend so that there can be a healthy environment for innovation? Well, first of all, you have to make innovation a part of the job for everybody. In most organizations, except for perhaps product development, which is kind of is their job to do that, most organizations, it's like, it's not my job to innovate. That's somebody, that's engineering, that's somebody. And we'll get around to innovating when we're done with the real work. Real work being make the donuts, ship the donuts and all that. And what you have to do is you have to make it a part of every person's job description. That is the real work. Because as you know, if companies don't innovate, at some point in time, they're on a going out of business curve. I mean, they just are, you know. And when I came to the company I'm with right now, there was not a whole lot of innovation going on. So I, this will be, you'll think this is crazy, but here's what I did. My manufacturing company, right? So I hired the ex-chief creativity officer of the QVC network to come and teach innovation to all my employees. When I tell people that, they go, What? That's a home shopping network. What's that got to do with manufacturing? Well, not nothing. But he came in and, and I had him teach every single employee, manufacturing, engineering, marketing, sales, administration, everybody from the ground up, 
from brainstorming, how do you do that properly, to how do you advance an idea along the along the chain. And, uh, and then he, so he came in, did all that. Then he'd come back about every three weeks and give people a homework assignment. And so then they would pick something to innovate. It could be a process, could be a new product. And he uh, uh, would work them through that process. And he'd come back every two or three weeks for about a year. After that, people sort of picked it up on their own and they started running with it. And I'll just tell you a quick story. One time, uh, one of the employees came up to me, a factory employee, said, you know, we really like this innovation stuff, but we could do more of it and better of it if we had like a dedicated space to do it in. And so I looked at him and I said, hmm, you let me make sure I get this right. You want me to take a, a space in my manufacturing space that actually makes money and turn it into a think tank? About now, he's wanted to wish he'd never opened his mouth. And I said, I love it. So I spent about a half a million dollars creating a space in the factory, not in the office, because this is an all hands exercise. Uh, and it's just, it's a perfectly designed place to uh, the right ambiance and environment uh, to innovate. And my employees can go back in that space anytime they want and do whatever they need to do. They don't have to ask anybody's permission to do it. So it's a creativity center. Yep. What kind of things would they work on? Well, everything from uh, new product development. They get an idea from the sales or marketing organization about the environment would like this or could use this. They might work on that. They might work on how do you cut the cycle time down on a molding machine in half? How do you cut the material uses down in half? How do you cut the waste in the in the administrative areas in half? How do we reduce the amount of paper we touch? You name it. And they're allowed to pick. Well, I pick a few of the big ones, obviously. Other than that, they're allowed to pick almost anything they want. And I get a lot of questions, particularly from my board, about what'd you get for that half a million dollars? And my answer is all the same. A couple of really big innovations and a million little ones. Now, if you want me to waste time trying to count for all of them, uh, I'm probably not going to do it. The big ones I can account for. The little ones, who knows? Once it's embedded in the organization and people really like it, oh, and, and they have to be recognized and rewarded for it. They can't be, you know, okay, I'm glad you worked your ass off and I got this great new product. Thank you. Go back to your machine. You got to do the recognition and reward too. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious with your background, you have so much experience. And if you were working with a group of individuals that were just starting with an organization, what would be some things you would recommend to them that would be important for them to do to be successful in their career? Well, first thing is go up and ask whoever you're working for, how can I help? Don't stay within the confines of your job description. One of the worst problems in business today, Steve, is job descriptions. That doesn't give people freedom to do what might be best. It confines them in what they do. It's, it's, it's like a hotel maid. She's got a, a checklist, right? Not only does she got to check off the checklist and do what's on the checklist, she's probably not even allowed to do anything that's not. And so you should come up to your boss within the first week and say, yep, I, I got the job, so I'm going to do that. I'm wondering if there's something else that I can do to help you. They will find that very refreshing. They'll go, what? People don't ask me that. And then go ahead and do whatever they suggest. Or come up to them and say, I notice there's a little thing over here that could be improved upon. I know it's not my job description. I'd like your permission to go ahead and do something about it. And if you make that your operating practice, if you make that your modus operandi and go wherever wherever they want you to go, I guarantee you, you'll be successful. 
I used to go to some of the worst outposts in the company. My wife hated it because I'd drag her all around at one city, one little burg and all that. And most people wouldn't touch them because they were crappy assignments. That's the ones that you want to take on. Uh, that's good advice. Gets back to being a problem solver, the go-getter, saying, let me after it. I, I, I'm ready to do this. I'll take it on and I'm going to make it better. Okay, great. Well, this has been a fun interview today and I can't believe we're getting towards the end of our interview. Any final tips you'd like to leave for our listeners today, Steve? Yeah, I mentioned uh, culture is everything in a company. Here's the thought I'd like to leave your listeners with is you want a Cirque du Soleil culture in your company. Now, most of your listeners have been to a Cirque du Soleil performance. They're all jazzed up to do better today than they did yesterday. What you don't see with them is like the one guy swinging down through the rope, the guy that's supposed to catch him, you don't see him go, I don't feel like catching you today. I had a bad night. You know, you're on your own. I'm being a little facetious, but not much, right? And so when I say that to CEOs, they go, this is a manufacturing company, kid, not a circus performer, but wouldn't you want though that kind of attitude out of all of your employees? And, and so what you want to work toward is try modeling what they do. And you can learn a lot about what they do. There's lots of books written about it. And align your organization to a Cirque du Soleil kind of culture. And you'd be amazed at what, uh, what good things will happen if you do. Great. How can people find out about what you're doing, Steve? Well, probably the best way is my website, which is stephenlblue.com. I don't know what my, I know I got a link. My, my team does a LinkedIn thing and a Facebook thing, but that's probably the easiest way. Okay. Then why don't you repeat it one more time so we're sure they got it? stephenlblue.com. And that's Stephen with a V. Okay. Good enough. Well, thanks, Stephen L. Blue, for being part of our show today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, hanging out with you. Oh, same here. And really some powerful, significant things that we've discussed today that are game changers. They make a difference in a professional life or in any person's life, in a home, at a school, to you know, be that kind of a go-getter. So we wish you the best in all that you're doing, Steve. Well, thank you. Same to you and all your listeners. Okay, thanks. Congratulations. And to our listeners... We're so grateful to be able to be together with you today. We're honored. And thank you for joining in. Says so much about you and your desire to improve. And we're wishing you a great day and the best in all that you do. This is Steve Schallenberger signing off. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful, for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.